I love Jared Allen. Fear the frog. Pow! With the right hand. That's our boy Bob Schmidt. <laughs> Jared Allen with authority. This is the Fear the Fro podcast, a Cleveland Cavaliers and NBA podcast with Bob Schmidt. Nobody's going to subscribe. Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast. I'm Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports Radio, a lifelong Cav fan, and this is my Cavs and NBA podcast. Getting into the season now. We have a handful of games under our belt, seven, in fact, to be able to, well, seven for the Cavs anyway, some some more, some less with other teams. But the point is, I think we sit in a good place to be able to look at this Cleveland Cavalier team, seven games in, playing nearly 500 basketball, and tomorrow, or today, depending on when you're listening to this, or in the past, if you're listening to this exceptionally late, hopefully, 500 ball after taking on the Hornets for the second time this season. Let's just see how you do, Miles Bridges, now that Evan Mobley has seen what you're capable of. That's the past. This is the new Cavs. The Cavs have walked into Denver and saw Lowry Markkinen just drape that giant finish hog right on Nikola Jokic's head as he yammed on him and then shoved him to the ground with his momentum. They couldn't stop us. Then Cleveland goes into L.A., Beats the Clippers on the road for the first time since 2016. I call that progress. The Cavs led wire to wire. Paul George didn't even score until the second quarter. Shot a miserable 6 for 20. You know that the Clippers got thumped when their leading scorer is Nicholas Batum. So Colin Sexton just threw the Cavs on his back. Just rolled right through L.A. on Wednesday night. Maybe not on Friday night. But on Wednesday night, 26-7. and So now we're riding high. We're 3-2. and Winning record. Heading into Staples Center yet again to take on LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, of all people, torched us. Russell Westbrook, shockingly efficient compared to his normal standards, shooting over 50% from the floor. And some very solid play from Avery Bradley. The most disappointing game of this road trip. I didn't like a lot of what happened in the Suns game, which was the closeout of this West Coast road swing. Another road game against the Hornets coming up, but. I'm separating that almost as if it's a different road trip for no logical reason, except that I live in Los Angeles. So I had two nights in a row of having the Cavaliers in my own backyard, went to the Clippers game. But as a fan who doesn't root for either of those teams, I find the experience going to the Clippers games far better because generally speaking, they're much less of a scene. Also, I happen to be the voice of the Clippers, I don't know what you want to call it, imaging for those of you in the business. but. Uh, That allows me to attend the games with a little more ease than the Lakers. So, I didn't have to watch Carmelo Anthony, fellow Syracuse alum, rip my heart out in the fourth quarter. But I did get to see the man who's on my podcast today, Adam Oslin, the pregame and postgame voice of the Clippers out here in L.A. We talked a lot of shit to one another in the offseason. I went on his podcast, or he came on mine, I don't even remember at this point. Quite frankly, sometimes I think, oh, I talked about that here. I didn't talk about that here, but I did talk about it on Broken Jumper, which is where I had Adam Oslin come on and join me. And we talked a lot about Isaiah Hartenstein versus Harry Giles. I advocated for Hartenstein, and I think that's bared out. But we got to see our poor boy Hartenstein just get trounced by our Cavaliers. Haven't had Adam on the podcast since that game, but now is definitely as good a time as any because with seven games, with six games, has anyone played eight games? Hold on, let me just glance. By the time you hear this podcast, we're probably eight games into the season. 
So with the information we have, the Cavs being basically a 500 team, how do we feel about what we've seen transpire so far? Here are some of my takeaways. I know I said in the preseason, I was saying 31 wins. I do think there's a chance that we could exceed that. It's hard to say, though, what type of trends we're going to see consistently sustain versus what we'll see later in the season. I'll tell you one trend that's happening league-wide that I love is less free-throw shooting. When the Cavs played the Hawks, I still feel like Trey Young is going to be pretty effective at getting to the line because he manages to just stop and jump straight up but knows a guy is coming up behind him with near-full momentum. And some of the foul calls he got, those are just basically unavoidable. We saw him pin Isaac Okoro between the screener and him and just go up and force a foul call that Okoro was seemingly doing everything within his power to avoid, but he could not get there. However, I will be content if they just eliminate the whistles where a guy jumps sideways or jumps forward when he gets a guy up in the air on a pump fake to try to throw himself under him. I will be content with just eliminating those from the games. And I, I got to admit, it does make me happy seeing people complain that James Harden is he's fallible now that he's not going to the line 15 times a game. Although this last game, he did get to the line 15 times, basically. So maybe the complaints, maybe it's going to be like what we see in the postseason where coaches work the refs, and then the next time there's an overcorrection in their favor. I hope that's not the case. I think it's fantastic for the flow of the game to see so much of the, you know, the bullshit whistles just waved off. I saw just this past week, I saw Pat Beverly try to do it, got the ball out in transition, and he dribbled to the side and he stopped, and he forced himself basically to get run over from behind, and they called him for the offensive foul, which delighted me. Not that I dislike Pat Bev. I'm sure I would love him. I want the fouls called to be ones that took place in the act of trying to play actual basketball, not in the act of just trying to sell something to the officials. So I'm a fan. And I agree with what was said on the broadcast. That was one very positive rule change. Seeing them kind of cut down on whistles. And I hope that sustains because much like in football and stuff where when they first make a rule change, a lot of times they will call things excessively to drive into the minds of the players that, no, you need to alter your behavior. This is something that we immediately, we've prioritized it. We want to change it and we're not going to reward you. Maybe it just starts out heavy-handed at first, letting pretty much everything go, and then we'll settle into some sort of happy medium. However, I would be perfectly content. Flow of the game-wise, it's fantastic to see things that shouldn't be fouls not get called fouls. If, if, they're, if they're made just as a way to bait the ref because a player happens to be such a scoring threat that guys play relatively tightly up on them, I'm fine with that. The other thing that I would love to see more of as we go through the years here is these fouls in transition. There's so many times where we're at that moment where the ball is turned over and it's just before half court or just beyond half court where the other team realizes they're outnumbered. It's going to be a two-on-one, three-on-one break, so they just foul before a guy can get a clear path situation set up. I hate that as well. Now, there's nothing to be done about that this season, but at least so far, I love the flow of these games. Now, let's get back to the Cavs, though. The bench. For one, this team is much deeper this year. But, unfortunately, we were given such good performances from Ricky Rubio early in the season when he was filling in for Garland. Now, in this last Suns game, there was definitely a noticeable change in momentum between the first unit and the second unit. Coming out of the gate, that first shift we got in the Cleveland versus Phoenix game 
was fantastic. The Cavs built an early lead. Then in the second quarter, they came out of the gate, ran the lead up to 14 points. And at that point, the bottom just fell out. It got worse and worse to the point where Phoenix built up a 24-point lead midway through the third quarter. Bickerstaff yanked everybody, clearly was disgusted by the effort from the starters. And we got to see a unit that consisted of five white dudes. It was love out there with Osman and Rubio and Windler and Dean Wade. The score made it look like the game was much closer than it was. This game effectively got away from the Cavs in the middle of the second quarter. Now, in the first quarter, I loved what the Cavs were getting out of their starting unit, specifically Garland and Mobley. But also, I think one of the things we saw was where Jared Allen, he wasn't scoring prolifically in the first quarter, but he was a dump-off target for Garland. He was able to create opportunities for Mobley by drawing defensive attention towards him. And in the second quarter, where things got away from the Cavs, what felt like happened was our second unit came in. Rubio was forcing. Love was forcing. Now, let me be clear. Kevin Love has been a positive so far, one of the trends that I enjoy for this season. But as it relates to this last game, with Ricky Rubio going 3 for 15 and Love going 4 for 12, and those guys taking up a significant amount of the shots with the second unit, you're going to have a hard time weathering that storm. And I think we did initially because Landry Shamit was just garbage. He was 1 for 7. He came in when that second unit came in. And while the Cavs' lead expanded, In the early part of the second quarter, I attribute as much of that to him being awful as I do the Cavs just playing better. However, we made it to the middle of the second quarter, and where things really changed is when DeAndre Ayton began to impose his will during the minutes that Mobley was the one responsible for guarding him. He had three buckets in a very short span in the late part of the second quarter that he cut the lead to five. The Cavs scored again to bring it back to seven. He cut it to five again. Then he got fouled in a basket. He made over Jared Allen, but he got the and one, tying the game. They took the lead. They went into half up by four. And Ayton, in that quarter, he was dominant. The game before, Ayton did a 20 and 20, but he was showing the gap between the physicality he could impose on Mobley and the physicality that he could impose on Jared Allen. Unfortunately, even with him leaving the game, I thought they got excellent minutes out of Jalen Smith. Mikael Bridges, some wonderful off-ball action and some wonderful transition opportunities to score buckets. His buckets just come so easy in the flow of the game. Devin Booker, Devin Booker was the other one who, I mean, he had chipped in 27 points and he did it in what I would call a somewhat even flow way. But I felt like Mikael Bridges had some real like soul-crushing momentum minutes and DeAndre Ayton in that second quarter, that was the difference to me. It put the Cavs in a position where they started to play far more tentatively or uncertain. Things just got out of hand in the third quarter until we just yanked all the starters and went with the bench squad. But I don't want to frame this bench discussion in a negative way because the bench has been a positive. Ricky Rubio, Kevin Love, Osman off the bench, all being able to contribute offensively is fantastic. It's just problematic in the sense that against the Suns, these are guys who took 42 shots collectively and unfortunately only made 14 of those and most of those were from Osman. Osman, this is a silver lining if there is one. I think he's in a situation now where between all the progress we've seen in the starting unit and the offense that we're going to get from Love and Rubio with the second unit and even some of these other guys who are proving their capable scores, I like Dean Wade. I don't care if he barely plays. I just love the way he plays and I know we don't have a ton of minutes for him 
But I think Osman will be asked consistently to have to do less, and I think more attention will go towards other guys, which ideally will open things up for him. And if he can even take a step towards the type of efficiency he showed from the three-point arc against the Suns, it's a huge role for the Cavs. If he can shoot reasonably well from three-point land last night to take 12 attempts and make half of them, I couldn't be happier with Osman. Not happy with the result for the team. However, the minutes we got out of Osman and Windler, Windler, he was sniffing a you know double-digit scoring. And of course, he had injury issues, didn't get to play. But Lamar Stevens, I'm ready for those minutes to just go to Windler. I don't think our problem is going to prove to be defense over the course of the season. I think we have a lot of length. And ideally, if we're playing the starters 30 minutes, now they, they got short leashes this last game because Bickerstaff was sending a message. Mobley, Allen, Sexton, all around 20 minutes. But in general, Windler giving us eight points, four of eight from the floor. He had very productive minutes. And I'm hopeful as this season progresses, we'll see him carve out a spot in the rotation that I don't want to overreact to Steven's troubles. I mean, Garland threw one of those passes at his feet that just got fumbled out of bounds. And he missed some bunnies. It happens. It was not his night. I'm hoping that our defense is good enough when Okoro's back that his role will be fairly limited. The guys on the bench I'm most excited about at this point are the ones everybody is. Ricky Rubio looks like he's really going to help us to be able to stagger Garland or Sexton and ride the hot hand. And that's what I want. I don't want to have to rely on Sexton to give us 25 every single night because some nights he's just not going to have it. But when he's on, he's deadly. And that game against the Clippers was a reminder to anyone who is ready to pull the plug on Colin Sexton just because the guy wants to be paid what he's worth. This guy isn't a luxury. He's a main component of this team. We just happen to have more talent around him. The bench, obviously that's one takeaway from the early season. I also feel very positively about the starter, Darius Garland. I think he's been excellent, especially in the early parts of games. Now, I do think there is some room to improve in terms of his impact off the ball. But I do love the aggression so far. He's in that attack mode. He's probing. He's looking for floaters. He's looking for alley-oops. He's pulling the trigger on shots sooner, which is all good. Just need to cut back on the turnovers and some of the forced decisions. Between him and Evan Mobley, to me, those two are clearly showing that they have all the potential to be the future of the team. And that's not to say that Sexton might not outscore them. But the impact that Garland can make when he's on is just so substantial, as opposed to having that punch-for-punch power that Sexton feels like he has, where it's like, okay, your guy can score, but I'm coming right back at you. Garland's ability to impose himself on a game also gets a lot of our other guys involved, like Mobley and Allen, and those guys are critical to being able to put together a whole team effort and win some of these games. So I love what we've seen from Darius Garland. I just would love him to be even more of an off-ball threat because Sexton is so capable. And Ricky Rubio tends to have the ball in his hands quite frequently as well. I alluded to it earlier. The three-guard lineups to me are a little bit clunky when we try to play all three of them together. And as much as I love them all individually as components, I just don't know that those are the most effective lineups. I tend to be far more happy with the results of when we shift to three bigs than I have been to when we shift to those three guys all playing alongside one another. I will take the Lowry Markinen, the Darius Garland, assertive, aggressive mentality, because again, this may come at a detriment to Sexton's stats, but I don't think it has to come at a detriment to Sexton's overall impact. If we could give him a little more around him in terms of consistent aggression from Garland and Markinen, I think it can only stand to benefit Sexton 
so that maybe he doesn't have to score 25 points a game, but the buckets he's getting are at big times and they're with less attention from the defense because his job's hard enough as it is. And I saw a stat showing that he's one of the most efficient guys at the rim. The only one on the list near the top of the NBA who was under six foot seven. He's finishing, but to make his job just a little bit easier, if Garland can continue to prove that he can be both a threat with the ball in his hands, but also off-ball threat. One particular play I liked was the corner pin down from Evan Mobley, where they were so worried about Mobley rolling because Garland has proven that he can throw those oops that Garland came up high over the corner pin down screen and pulled up immediately and hit the three. It's not as flashy as cutting through the lane and hesitating and pumping and getting these floaters, but it's just as effective. In fact, more so because if they give you an inch of space, take it. And I saw another play. Paul tried to go under the screen on Jared Allen. Garland pulled up immediately. Keep doing it. Keep applying the pressure in that way, but also be ready to take shots when you get them off ball. We haven't seen much of it yet, but I like this dynamic of three guys who can all play with the ball in their hands. But ideally, Rubio will make a respectable amount of spot-up three-pointers, and we'll be able to stagger the minutes of those guys to keep them all fresh and to keep them all impactful over the course of this season. Next observation, Evan Mobley is phenomenal. His effort, his general attitude, his ability to exist within the offense, even if he's not getting shots up, I think it's all going to contribute to him being able to play through his growing pains. Because with a guy like Kevin Love, if he's just having a horrible night and he's forcing, you've got to take him out of the game. You've got to change the momentum. But Mobley just does not force. He's also not a guy who fouls excessively. It's going to allow him to be on the floor for 30, 35 minutes every night in a role where the expectations aren't going to crush him. And I think this is going to benefit everyone who's a Cavs fan because he's going to get from point A to point B far faster. We see it. There's nights he strings it all together. Now the Suns, that was a rough game. Aiden exposed him. He showed what an aggressive offensive center who has a little bit of girth can do to him when Allen is not in the game. But we knew that was coming. And he's going to grow into the body more and more. It's the decision-making that we need to focus on. And so far, Evan Mobley has not forced anything. He's not playing like a rookie. He's not playing like a guy who's looking to showcase a Jalen Green type. I love that Evan Mobley's role on this team is one which is going to allow him to play through the warts because we're not putting him in a place where he's going to be exposed to the fan bases having cost the Cavs a chance to win. We're not in this showcase mode like the Pistons or the Rockets. It seems like we're actually playing to play winning basketball, and I could not be happier about that. Here's a trend that I'm both troubled by and optimistic about. The namesake of this podcast, Jared Allen. Fear the Fro Podcast, of course. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Fear the Fro Pod. Back to the point, what I've liked about Jared Allen is the highs. He's got extremely high highs. 25-point game on 11-for-11 shooting to open the season. This new podcast I named after this guy. And how does he come out of the gates? 30 minutes, near perfection. He also had a phenomenal game against Nikola Jokic. 21 points, 16 rebounds, shot 10 of 11 from the floor. And it came in a winning effort. The discouraging thing has been these last few games. Against the Clippers, very quiet. Two of seven from the floor, his worst shooting night. Only night, really, that he shot below 50% from the floor. Six points, nine rebounds against the Lakers. Only shot three times. Four points, eight rebounds against the Suns. Only shot three times. 
Now, it's a luxury, really, that he has so many good players around him in the front court that we can weather those games if Mobley contributes more, or if Markinen contributes more, or even if Love does. However, selfishly, I have tethered my fates to this man, Jared Allen. I named the podcast after him. So I don't want to see him score six points, then four points, then two points, then God forbid, no points. If things go badly for him, they almost certainly are not going to reflect well upon me. It'd be like naming this podcast after David Wesley when he threw that layup off the bottom of the rim when he was wide open. That would be a horrific time to have gone out on the island of David Wesley. And I have put myself firmly on Jared Allen Island. So he has to excel. And I want to see more games where he goes 10 for 10, 10 for 12, 11 for 12, 11 for 11. All the various double-digit shot attempts without a miss that you could think of. Because I don't want a situation like Subway where, you know, and I'm not calling Jared Allen a pedophile, don't get me wrong, but that would be a tough way to go out. Where I tie my fates to this guy as a face for my podcast and then have some horrific showings leading the news. Again, just to make sure legally that there is no gray area here, I am not calling Jared Allen a pedophile. I am just an exceptionally lazy man who saw a guy named Jared and another guy named Jared, and I thought, hey, they're both the face of a brand. I should compare them. But there is no comparison. They are not the same person, and I regret having gone down this path, but I also don't want to edit this, so it's staying in the podcast. Moving on. Let's make an extremely difficult segue here and shift from child pornography talk to Adam Osland, the pre- and post-game voice of the LA Clippers. First time I've spoken to him since, well, before the regular season has started here on this podcast, and I waited until I, now, if the Cavs haven't beaten the LA Clippers, yeah, I probably wouldn't have brought him on. But since I we're figured. in the, the aftermath of the Cavs' victory over the LA Clippers, and what could only be described as just a horrific start for, <laughs> for the LA Clippers at this moment. Adam Oslin, thank you for joining me on the program. Now, just before we get into this, at Follow Adam A, you're speaking to the Cavs fandom right now. This isn't my typical Broken Jumper podcast oh. where we chop it up. But I thought, what better time to you know cross-pollinate here than when we're coming off of a victory over your team? That was so like three days ago, though, now. It was. It was. This we're, is the Fear the Fro podcast? This is. This is the Fear the Fro podcast. I didn't know if I was allowed on here. You're allowed on anywhere so you want to come So we're going to talk on. about some Larry Hughes and uh, Ricky Davis trying to get a triple-double, and Jerry Sloan almost had a heart attack. Is that what the Cavs fans want to talk about? I think uh, what we want is just for you to come on here and address the Cleveland fan base uh, as, you know, as your superiors. I mean, at least right now. I mean, Aren't the they Cavs, three and four now. They're three and four. <laughs> I mean, but that three and four, I don't. I haven't done the math in my head, but the winning percentage might be slightly higher than one and four. And that's fair enough. Okay, but I, to I speak- gave them plenty of love, by the way. No, I, I in don't. The Clippers doubt it. pregame show before that game, I was doing all this mad research on the Cleveland Cavaliers, and when was the last time that they made the playoffs when they didn't have LeBron James on the team? Tell me that. Ninety. Track catch you slipping, Bob. Well, you've caught me slipping. <laughs> I'm gonna go 96. I think it was 98. 98. Oh, with the Zadrunas Alga- Oh, yeah, and uh, Terrell Brandon. That's quite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. I totally forgot that. Yeah. When Jordan um, hit another game winner, everybody remembers the original the shot, but he took out the Cavs in 93 with a series winning shot against them then too. 
That is in the past. That's what we Similar need to, focus to your on. loss to the Cleveland Cavaliers. <laughs> Humiliating me about past failures. Yeah. It doesn't change the outcome of last week, Adam. I guess if I'm saying, well, that was so three days ago, and now I'm going back yeah. 30 years yeah. to try to find some insulting things to say about the Cavs. Hurtful. All right. Well, okay. So coming into the game, what were you expecting? What what didn't go the way? Obviously, lots of things went wrong. What was the biggest surprise after in the aftermath of that game for you? Probably wondering how I ended up here. Uh, <laughs> the biggest surprise was how good they were defensively, not just with their athleticism and their defensive acumen individually, but they played really well together. I thought the Cleveland Cavaliers, they played five guys on a string, as everybody likes to say. It's not just that they're big. It's that they give you great effort, and they communicate, and they work together. I was really impressed with how good they were on the defensive end. I was I was very pleased. I mean, obviously, it's easier to say that in a game where your best player, you know, doesn't make a bucket till the second quarter. But I will say, for all in all the preseason conversation around the Cavs, one of the things that frustrated me was people were so early to dismiss the possibility of Lowry Markinen playing small forward. But what I'm finding over the course of this regular season, at least so far, and they've been exposed at moments. Like yesterday, they played the Suns. And Aiton, when the Allen came out of the game, Aiton just feasted on Mobley. was eaten. Yeah. And then he didn't even have to play most of the game. He got hurt. He left the game. And even his backup was doing solid. But one of the things I've enjoyed is that for all the criticism of the Cavs trying to experiment, essentially, with Markinen at the three, one, he is active defensively. He's far more mobile than I gave him credit for. I'm not saying he can consistently guard threes, but he's got Allen and Mobley behind him, which makes you feel like whatever trade-off you're getting on the defensive end, the size that he's giving you over Okoro, and then the offensive aggressiveness on his end just makes it feel like, well, this might be a tenable lineup. And especially against a team, you know, in the Clippers who were a little smaller on the front line than what they went up against Friday night in the Lakers, I really felt like it let them shine defensively. They have, and the Clippers have been shooting poorly all season so far, like a few teams have unexpectedly, but considering they have small guards at the point of attack with Sexland, just like the Portland Trailblazers have had issues with, with Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum for years, and I think that's a big reason why they always struggle defensively, but they're so much more superior on the interior, and those guys still play hard and give good effort, even though they're undersized. It makes up for so much. And you bring up, is it Lowry? Is it Lori? Is it Lowry? I say Lowry. I mean, Lowry. I don't think anybody's going to rip anyone for, because I've heard, I've heard TV guys go all sorts of ways, wow. but essentially once we traded for him, I'm like, I got to hear how the, the Chicago guys said this consistently because I've heard, I used to say Lori Markin. That's what I, that's what I still say. Yeah. I messed that up, I guess. Well, you know, who's to say what's right. I've heard people butcher Giannis regardless of like where they're from. I, I always say Lowry because I heard enough Bulls broadcasts where they said Lowry. Yeah. But that's not to say that like a lot of times color commentators for teams, they don't have to be correct. They just have to be entertaining. No, well, So who knows if I wasn't just listening to a guy who has that kind of latitude in Chicago to be able to say whatever he wants. Well, Noah Eagle is always going to get it right. Okay. Uh, even if he didn't, I would just say it how he said it. How did he <laughs> so say I'm it? I'm going to follow my guy. He said it more like a hybrid of Lori and Larry. Like Larry. Okay. Laura. Well, you know Laura. what? I, I, I've just, I just adopted the. I've just adopted that. Well, shit. I'm out on this this limb now. If it's wrong, well then you know what else I realized. By the way, for the Fear the Fro podcast listeners, 
My buddy pointed out to me that I put that stupid little mark after the fro when it should be before it because it's a uh, short. It's I'm shortening afro. Is that an easy edit or? It is an easy edit. I just can't that. believe I've made it 15 episodes. I'm like, what a total asshole. <laughs> Fuck I, me. Yeah, I know. I'm spelling it wrong. I, the, the tough That's part. That's when you know you're starting to make it though. When people start to critique stuff like that. Yeah. They're well, nitpicking I, you now, I got Bob. My you're first, too good for this. I got my first constructive criticism of the. Uh, short length of my podcasts, which is a valid criticism, but uh, one of the comments on Twitter was that 20 minutes isn't a podcast. It's it's just a PSA. <laughs> I'm like, well, okay. I mean, I can try to different go longer. strokes for different folks. Yeah. I want to please everyone though, Adam. It depends That's on just how here. long your drive is. I just thought, you know what? What better way to stretch it from 20 to 40 minutes than bringing on you to just bludgeon you about a meaningless regular season victory? I don't think it's meaningless. Well, I don't don't think it's meaningless either. It does feel slightly more meaningless after watching. Because during that Nuggets game and the Clippers game, I thought, oh my God, they're on the road. And the nice thing in this early season, I will say an unexpected trend that I pointed out earlier on the podcast I enjoy is while they have managed to collapse the last two games to the point where we were playing all white guys. By the end of the third quarter, we rolled out a lineup. It was Kevin Love. The ultimate Osmond. white flag. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. You would think, and yet they somehow chipped away at the lead to the point where by the end of the game, if you just looked at the, the final score, you'd say, oh, that wasn't that bad of a loss. It was a horrible loss. But then, but then the thing was, in watching those two games, you saw against both the Clippers and the Nuggets, they strung together runs in the other direction where they'd score 10 points unanswered or they'd score 12 points unanswered. And that just did not happen in past seasons. Against the Clippers specifically, when they were up by as many as 16 Cleveland, when the Clippers made two runs in the third quarter, they got it to within four multiple times. Colin Sexton just got to wherever he needed to get to on the floor and either scored or made made a play for somebody else. Like when they needed to score, when they needed to turn it on, flip that switch, they were able to. I was I was impressed with them on offense also, but the one concern I would have, because I'm, you know, lambasting them with with a lot with, of praise, actually. Praise. No, I want to hear the other side. Well I'm not objective. The, the problem when guys are playing this hard at the beginning of the season, it, everybody has this hope of, hey. We can make the playoffs. This is our year. We're going to sneak up on a bunch of teams, and maybe they have a little bit because they are so unorthodox having three big men out there, and guys aren't ready to see that, especially you know, a seven-game series. You're planning for the same team over and over again, but when you see one team twice a year, uh, when you're talking about a West Coast team like the Clippers, it's hard to get up for that and adjust to a team like that, but also effort-wise for them. Because I, I do think that was apparent against the Clippers. It's not just that they're talented individuals on defense, but they play well together and they seem to like each other. Uh, that can go by the wayside quickly after a five-game losing streak. Well, and, that's and- <laughs> exactly what concerns me because last season it was a similar story. Like I don't know if you recall, but they came out of the gate. They won like three or four, and both the guards, Garland especially, took a massive leap, and people were saying, oh, between Sexton and Garland, this is going to happen. Then they start piling up injuries, and it swung quick the other way to the point where now we're coming off two losses. They were kind of demoralizing in the way in which we gave them up, and we're facing a Hornets team who Miles Bridges, having a breakout season, he completely destroyed the Cavs in their first matchup this season. Averaging 25. I know, 25. Well, let's get to that, too. Let's get to that because that kind of there's some overlap in that subject area of Colin Sexton, of course, eligible for an extension. They did not give him one before the season. Miles Bridges in a similar boat. They're both in the same draft class. And you look at these guys now, seeing the other extensions in that draft class. And since the Cavs just played 
the, the Suns. It was fresh in my mind with Bridges and with Aiton's situation. Where do you think was Shamit in that draft class? I can't remember. Oh God, how terrible was he last <laughs> night? Like as much as there is little to nothing to criticize the Suns on after that game, Shamit he was one for he was brutal. Hey, he's still shooting forty percent on the season. All right. Well, maybe he is. Even but with that, that must have meant three. he was shooting like eighty percent before last <laughs> yes. night because because I watched that and I'm like, we the Cavs were leading at the end of the first quarter into the second quarter, and Shamit was just missing everything, and I'm like, how? How are we increasing this lead with Rubio going three for 15 from the floor and Kevin Love shooting like, you know, three or four for 12? It wasn't as if we were efficient with that second unit and somehow we were still increasing the lead until Aiton and and Bridges just went nuts in the second quarter. So you've had kind of two second half collapses in back-to-back games yeah. now. Because the yeah. Cavs only had 16 points in that fourth quarter against the Lakers, I saw. Yeah. And they lost the second half Carmelo. by 12 oh, points good or something. God. And that that's a narrative I hate. Here here's something you can relate to that uh, some of the, you know, fear the fro listeners in Ohio won't get this, but they probably get it on a national level in the sense that just how insufferable the the Lakers fan base can be and seeing them talk about things like, "Oh, well, you know, LeBron was just too much for the cast." LeBron shot awful. It was mellow and but the he fact hit that, that 40 footer oh, God. slapped his D right across the face. Yeah. That's what I saw on Twitter. Well, man, Dwight Howard did hit a three, which is always just a, an emasculating play to watch. Yeah. But I think they are undefeated in games where he hits a three pointer. Well, usually that was the only one. If he's shooting a three pointer, it usually means you're up by like 20 probably at that point and it doesn't matter. Or he's going rogue like Bynum used to. Oh, right, exactly. <laughs> but were you the one who sent me the article about Bynum? Because I was joking about how Simmons. You know, he should just get into a game and just start gunning indiscriminately, like shoot more threes in one game than he shot his entire career. And somebody sent me the article that Bynum's tenure with the Cavs ended after he just refused to stop shooting during practice. And they were finally like, we've had enough of this shit. There was yeah. something like that in the NFL once. Who was it? Brandon Marshall? Was that who was the uh, receiver for the Broncos? Then went to the Bears. Now yeah, he's Brandon an analyst. Marshall. Yeah. When he wanted to get paid or get traded in practice, he would not catch a ball. As soon as he would just volleyball spike it down, or he would punt the ball to the other side of the field. <laughs> just complete defiance. I, I have a soft spot for that. I, yeah. Well, I enjoy I, that. I, yeah. If you're going to leave, leave in style. You <laughs> yeah. Know? So, okay. So, to these guys that are rookies, if you had to handicap, I mean, Bridges, if he sustains this effort over the course of a season, He's probably making more money than Jaron Jackson Jr. by the end of the year. He's playing right now. I'm going to look up, look up what he has. Yeah. They're taking yeah. on the uh, Look up his style. I would be Blazers. curious. I can't multitask like that. But what I will do is fill this time while you look up what he's doing at this present moment. He's got 11 points in the first half. Okay. That's not bad. So far, he's doing 25 and a half, what, 50% for the floor and two steals and a block. And he's shooting a respectable, I want to say he's mid-30s. In three-point percentage, 35 or 36%. I think it might be even better. Because they are one of the teams that is thriving right now, even with the new Wilson balls. It's as simple as that. If you look up who's playing well and who isn't, just go look at three-point percentage. I know that's not groundbreaking because it's such a big part of the game, but the Charlotte Hornets are the second-best three-point shooting team right now at 40.2%. Okay. And he's a big part of that. Uh, Everybody for that. Even without Terry Rozier. They're playing so well right now. Well, and I don't know if he's back tonight. My hope is simply that that Bridges would. I love Bridges, but uh, you know the selfish part of me wanting uh, you know Sexton to shine and not lose the headlines is like, well, maybe Bridges will regress some uh, now that Rozier's back because he just murdered the Cavs when they played them the last time. And while I love Bridges because I'm a bit of a Michigan State stan, not for Draymond, however, uh, <laughs> clearly I I 
Not for Denzel Valentine either, actually. Now that I think about it, maybe I should just flip that stance altogether. <laughs> but if you were to handicap which of these guys make the most money, I'm going to give you three options here. Okay. DeAndre Ayton, Colin Sexton, Miles Bridges. By the end of their career? By the end of this year. Who's, who gets the most favorable contract extension? Because I'm saying this, I'm just going to make the assumption that Ayton stays in Phoenix. But it really doesn't matter for this question because it's more about just terms. Yeah. Which guy do you think ends up with the best deal following this season? It's probably Bridges because Charlotte has to keep him. They have to pay him whatever. They would overpay out of any any of those people because or any of those teams because you've talked about with Colin Sexton, he's not as appreciated by either the Cavs or the Cavs fans. So I could see them trying to lowball him or trying to see what the open market demands with him and then just match that. But I could see the Charlotte Hornets just going above and beyond to make sure that Miles okay. Bridges is taken care of. So where would you put Aiton versus Sexton then? Uh, do you think Sexton outdraws Aiton? Or do you think, because on a, on a surface level, here's my assessment. I'm with you on Bridges. In part because I think they need him. In part because I think he's that hybrid type of win that, that looks great alongside their franchise guy in LaMelo that you want to keep those guys together because yeah. the chemistry looks great. With Sexton, I think there is a distinct chance that at least in terms of counting numbers, we'll see those regress this year because he has more around him. Now, that's not to say I'm not discrediting his skill as a player. However, I still think even if I go in with the assumption that Sexton has a little bit of a statistical regression in terms of overall scoring, he's still a guard and a wing, and those guys tend to make more money than centers. So will Aiton, does he have enough outside leverage to really force his per-year value up beyond what Sexton's making? I. I do think centers just aren't as valued in today's game, and it makes sense. So I would probably slot Colin Sexton second. Even with the talk coming into this season of how much do they really like him, well, that could turn around very quickly if they become a playing team this year. That How much we like him, who cares? We need him. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would. I still think I'll probably give Aiton the edge just because I think Phoenix is a more legitimate contender, despite the fact they're 2-3 and three and they've lost to some real trash. They did beat the juggernaut Cavs, so that's something. Yeah. And, you know, I do think, like, watching that second quarter from Aint last night, they legitimately can't risk losing him. When push comes to shove, with Chris Paul at the end of his career, with Bridges on new money, with Crowder as an aging vet who clearly is a guy who can excel mainly when he's put along other people in a winning situation, it's just a stupid risk to take to let him go. I don't think they'll let him go. I, I guess I'm wondering. You think they'll force their hand and make make somebody either give an offer sheet or, yeah. well, okay, but do you think their baseline offer? Because here's the thing. There is so much room for both Sexton and Aiton between max contract yeah. and $20 million. So really the question then is, well, does he get more than Jaron Jackson Jr. money? Because I would arguably say he's a better player than Jaron Jackson Jr. Yes. At least at at least in terms of consistency. He's still not breaking out. Jaron Jackson Jr. Oh, is shooting 35%. God, he's making me look so goddamn stupid. Why? Because you were saying this is I went on a year. limb. I even made a little audio clip I put on Twitter about it. I've linked video to this fucking take. It's only been five games. Yeah, I know. <laughs> There's I know. time. But, but I am far less forgiving if th- during those five games, you're also submarining my field goal percentage on my fantasy team. Because <laughs> I didn't talk. I, I walked the walk, Adam. I didn't just talk the talk. I drafted that motherfucker in the fifth round. And, and he's shooting like 35% from the floor you also will be trading that motherfucker yes, <laughs> very soon if quite he doesn't possibly. get it together i i also drafted eight though so I, i've been <laughs> able to witness both of them 
Aiton did give me 20 and 20 the other night. So Aiton's a sure thing. Like he's a made man already. You know what you're going to get with him. His ceiling is obviously lower because he doesn't have the all around game that Jaron Jackson Jr. could have if he took that next step this season, but we haven't seen it yet. Okay. So this is, so I'm, I'm recapping my take, which is I'm doing it in this order. Bridges, Aiton, Sexton. Okay. I'll go Bridges, Sexton, Aiton. Okay, good. Then we'll pull this back out. I just. I just marked this thing. Fuck that. Cutting this up. <laughs> I'm only going to play it back if it works out in my favor. Otherwise, it's gone forever, so don't worry about it. I'm so, waiting to call out you and Kevin for our takes on Ben Simmons before last year started. Oh, sweet Jesus. <laughs> With the there James is so Harden much stuff, possibility. There is so much stuff I already feel pretty terribly about. Here's another take, which is, this isn't my take, but this was a Vegas take, which is just falling apart so far this early season. The leading guy for the odds for most improved player, Michael Porter Jr., Good God, has he started horrifically. Yeah. And all those Vax guys, Beal, him, shooting terribly. There are an inordinate amount of guys shooting terribly this season and playing much worse worse than they have based upon reputation, based upon numbers, based upon everything. It is alarming. And it's not just, I think, the rules. I think it's something to do with that damn Wilson ball. Like On one hand, you go, okay, they're professionals. How would they not adjust? They've probably been playing with them all summer long, but they're also so finely tuned with their dexterity to the shape and just the way the ball feels with the Spalding ball for so long. I do think that has an effect because you look at it and I know this did come from a, this was Stan Van Gundy who put this out earlier today on Twitter, but nobody refuted it. And I've seen other numbers and I believe this is true. Teams are averaging 36 threes per game this year. On average, that's the highest ever. But they're also shooting on average just 34% from three. If that continues, that would be the lowest league-wide three-point percentage since the 98-99 season. See, now this is the type of information that I appreciate <laughs> you bringing to the podcast. Look, the So NBA more threes season, than ever at a worse percentage than ever. Fewest free throws per game this year so far. Guys are getting wrecked by the new rules. I'm loving Specifically that. James Harden, who's only averaging 18 points per Fuck game. Fuck that guy. Yeah. And he did th- get 15 free throws the other night, though, right after he, he bitched and moaned. He's still only averaging, I think, 5.9, though, free throw attempts per game. A couple of years ago, he was getting almost 12 free throw attempts per game. I think that's great, though, for this flow of the game situation. If you're going to, even, even if they're overcorrecting a little bit, and even if they are targeting him, <laughs> and they might be because he is the poster boy for this, but that's on him. Yeah. Even if that's the case, I'd much rather have it this way than guys getting BS fouls and the grifting, as you would say, uh, yeah. the ref baiting, the flailing about that we've seen so much the past couple of years where they are just taking advantage of the, of the referees. I, and and you know what? I will say this having watched the Hawks twice now. We went once in the preseason and, and then again when they played the Cavs. It's not like Trey Young isn't still getting fouls. I don't care if they still bait for fouls if they actually come and they're legitimate fouls. The yeah. the side jumping, the yes. forward jumping, the, the intentionally, moves. yeah, th- those are the things that if you just cut that out, I'm fine. If they're going heavy handed now to kind of change guys' mentalities and I get them to shift, it. then so be it. But Trey Trey Young still got some questionable fouls on Okoro and some of the Cavs where they almost blew that win there, or the momentum could have shifted. But I will say, at least he was going straight up. At least he was taking advantage of, okay, the guy's kind of pinned on a screen. I'm going up now because I know he can't avoid contact. That's still bullshit, like bullshit I'm willing to live with. It's also not just the three-point shooting that's down. Overall, field goal percentage, the lowest it's been since 2003. I mentioned three-point percentage since 2000, but 
lowest offensive rating since 2014 right now. When we just saw the last two years, Dallas broke the all-time offensive rating record, I think held by the 2016 Warriors or the 2017 Warriors. And then last year, five teams were above that. So it was getting out of control. You mentioned Trey Young. He's scoring three less points per game. Steph Curry, four less points per game. Beal, who's shooting miserably. He's at 35% from the field right now. Tell me about it. And they're bro. still five and one. Oh, you got him too. Yeah. I just decided to lean into the Vax dudes because they were all plummeting in the drafts. And I'm like, I'm going to buck the trend. So I somehow Vax ended value. up with Isaac on my team, Kyrie on my team, Beal on my team, and Michael Porter Jr. on my team. The, yeah. only, the only one I'm missing is Andrew Wiggins. But since he got the vaccination, maybe he doesn't really count anymore. Hey, he's shooting 40% from three right now. Well, that's what happens. <laughs> you get the vaccination and it just skyrockets. This wasn't meant to be political. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? Uh, you can't argue with results. Maybe the side effect that they should have been concerned about was dog shit shooting. <laughs> Damian Lillard, 28 points per game last year. He's at 19 right now. He's He had a good game against the Clippers the other night. He's playing right now against the Charlotte Hornets, but he was shooting, I think, 35% from the field coming into that Clippers game. Uh, Joel Embiid, down from 28 points to 21 points per game. Something is up. That's shocking. There is way too much going on. Well, Jason Lucas Tatum is another points. guy. Jason Tatum shooting like 40% from the floor, and I think he's under 28% from three. I think he's 26 27%. Not to mention Marcus Smart. It's like 23%. I think he's only 26% from the floor. That Celtics team was one that I remember talking to you before the season and being like, I don't think people are giving enough credit. And now I'm like, oh, Jesus, you're making me look like a complete dickhead. I just I just you have misses. Horford. I have misses across. Well, Horford's been great. Don't get me wrong. Horford's been great. But Tatum, he's being outplayed by Jalen Brown. And Tatum was a guy who yeah. I said, <laughs> I was talking about guys who had relatively low odds for MVP that I could see being dark horse candidates. And I'm like, oh, Paul George, Jason Tatum. Then I see Paul George just miss everything against the Cavs. He's still obviously a great player. And this is very early in the season. I'm, I'm overreacting wildly to samples. But Tatum has been fairly bad so far. And that team has lost some games that are just yeah rough. They've had, I think he and Jalen Brown are both averaging 26 a game. Yeah. But Tatum's taken about five more shots uh -huh. to get there. Yeah. And you saw that, in, and even in these games, because they've played some close games. Of course, they had the overtime game with the Knicks and even the other night when it came down towards the end of the game and they were taking on the Wizards, you just felt like, don't give the ball to Tatum. He is not making anything when it matters. And then it ended up being like, even with all of Beal's horrible shooting, they just, they couldn't overcome it. Well, the Knicks have been on like the other side of this fluky shooting. They actually, I believe, yes, they are shooting the best from three in the league this season. They have one of the best offensive ratings, if not the best offensive rating so far this season, but it's not sustainable. Consider who the Knicks have beaten too. They've beaten the Magic. They've beaten the Bulls, who are a very good team. Yeah. They've beaten the Pelicans, pretty bad. They lost to the Magic, and they beat the Sixers and the Celtics. Like, not to say, it's hard to look at the... Because my first thing when you were coming on today, I was like, I wonder how Adam is feeling about some of these teams who are excelling. And because you're kind of on the other end of it right now, mm -hmm. where it's like they're going through through it with the Clippers. Which of these teams are like legitimate overachievers, and which of them do you see as just you know smoke and mirrors? And so many of them are propped up on these records where, like, you could make the argument that the Knicks—that's a fraudulent five and one—that the Bulls. 100% you could make that argument because they've beaten the Pistons twice, the Pelicans, the Raptors, and then they beat the Jazz, who's a very solid team. But the Wizards and the Heat, on the other hand, in terms of the Eastern Conference teams that are 5-1, and one, they've beaten some legit 
competition. And Montrez Harrell has played great. Good God. him, <laughs> He and Kuzma. Yes. You look at what they're doing. KCP is shooting like 46% from three. They have gotten, they look so much better with that depth and with Dinwiddie in the fold. It was so easy to forget about him because he's been gone for a year. But despite the relative terrible start that Beal has had, I mean, he's putting up counting numbers, yeah. but he's doing it at such horrific efficiency that you can't help but think that if they're five and one with Beal playing like this, exactly, if they can get even... And this is before Thomas Bryant comes back. Mm-hmm. This is with Gafford out with injuries. He had an excellent preseason as an alternative to Montrez Harrell to the point where one of the biggest criticisms with Harrell has always been you can't play him when it matters in the playoffs because he's a huge defensive liability. It's not a criticism. It's a fact. <laughs> it's true. But they have Gafford, who's been the opposite end of that. And it's like even with them starting him, it hasn't impacted Harrell's ability to just come out and put up massive numbers to start this season. 23 and 12 his last three games. And this last game that both he and Kuzma did 15 plus rebounds. Yeah. It's it's crazy. They're 10th defensively. They're actually only 14th offensively, but Beal can change that in a hurry. So yes, as other guys regress, he's going to progress to the mean and it should balance things out to the point where I am starting to buy in on them. I know, and this is just, I'm just exposing myself left and right here, but I thought the Cavs would be like on the fringes of the playoff bubble with them. And at least as it starts right now, I have to say I'm very high on the Wizards to begin this season. There's a lot of these other 5-1 and one teams that it's like, okay, I did believe that the Bulls were going to be tremendous defensively because the Cavs saw them multiple times in the preseason and they had length and they had effort. But to hear what you're saying about the offense coming around too, it's like, okay, I don't know where I fall on that simply because they've beaten some real trash teams. Yeah. So it's hard to say, but it is encouraging to see. And, and I was I was a skeptic on the Heat, but Hero has you taken are. another step, and Butler has come out on a tear. He's doing he's playing unbelievably. He's getting an efficient twenty five. Hero's getting an efficient twenty two. Those two plus Bam Adebayo are basically getting you an efficient 70 every night. And then it's, you just fill in the rest. Real. Even it, with P.J. Tucker and Kyle Lowry, they haven't played very well so far. Lowry it hasn't has, mattered. Lowry has barely had to yeah. do anything. He's getting and, like eight points per game. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and he, But but to be able to have Hero take that kind of step forward is such a luxury for them to the point where I look at these 5-1 teams, I feel good about the Wizards, I feel good about the Heat, and, even, and the Knicks and the Bulls. I always felt like writing off the Knicks was premature, primarily because just... From a theoretical standpoint, I don't believe that you should discount teams who are very strong defensively because a lot of times for them to add the luxury of offensive talent they did this year, even if those guys are, you know, negative defenders on an island in that system, it's just like the Cavs. It's like, okay, their guards, they may be negative overall defenders when they're in isolation, but they have three, seven footers behind them who are going to cover up for a lot of their mistakes. And with the Knicks, I kind of felt similar in the sense that it's like, okay, Kemba, he said he can have some horrible nights. Fournier can have some horrible nights. Maybe they're not lockdown defenders, but having all that firepower between Quickly and Rose and Kemba and Fournier and Barrett, where you don't know you're getting it night from night, to still have that staple of defense behind them. And this is with Nerland's not even playing yet. Well, would it surprise you then that right now they're 22nd defensively? Yeah, so, 100% it would. As much as. That's why I say, and that's my hesitance to say like it's a legitimate five and one. Right. Because. Obviously, they're beating some teams that are very questionable to begin with. But to come out of the gate, I guess I'm just saying it is positive momentum that they've they've come out five and one. I will be curious to see how they can sustain it because they're definitely making that gamble that they could substitute offense for defense when last year they got by 
just on having an incredible defense. And it feels like Tibbs is betting on the fact that he can raise those negative defenders with the guys and with the system he has placed around them. I'll say this. They have no chance of finishing second like they are right now offensively. That's, they're the second, <laughs> That's, they have the second best offensive rating. Derrick Rose is shooting 56% from three. Kemba's shooting 50% from three. That stuff's not going to sustain itself. But also, in the same note, they're not going to finish 22nd defensively. They're going to get better in that area. So they're still going to be good enough to at least compete for maybe a sixth or seventh spot in the in the East. I, I think that's reasonable. Okay, so if you so so for the East, if you had to handicap it now, and you don't have to give me a, a one to eight, but who are your teams that you think are you know here legitimately to to, to well, play better than maybe we expected or at least Vegas expected of the teams that are playing well now that I think can keep it just up? in general. They could be teams that were playing horrible. I mean, the Bucks and the Nets. Are three and three. I think exactly. we all expect them to to rise in the rankings. But if you had to point to teams that, like for me, the Wizards are one of those teams where I, I look at them and I'm like, okay, I've seen enough from some of these ancillary guys that even if they regress somewhat, I think they're going to be better than I expected them to be. Even though Chicago hasn't played high level competition for the most part, I, I was very high on the moves they made this offseason. I thought they had the best moves overall, unless you count Kawhi Leonard being retained by the Clippers, of course. But just as a whole, <laughs> even with that contract they gave to DeMar DeRozan, to me, he's still good. He's going to age gracefully because of the type of game he has, and he still has plenty of athleticism left. But you had to secure Zach Levine long-term, and they're proving that they can build a sustainable winner there. Because when you bring in and I still can't believe the Pelicans let it happen, but getting uh, Lonzo Ball for that deal, and also getting Alex Caruso for the deal, those they two, got him on. I'm and with I can't you. believe I'm the Lakers let him, him go. I'm 100% with you on those maneuvers. I was going to bring that up specifically if you didn't, which is Caruso has been so impactful for them as that first man off the bench. And now that Williams is down for the season, it looks like they're going to shift DeRozan to be playing a lot of time at the power forward, which is going to give Caruso an even bigger role yeah. in that team going forward. And to see between him and Lonzo, I, I never understood that either. And I've been watching a lot of Pelicans early on because Jonas has just been destroying people. And, and, and some of my favorite breakout potential guys are on that team. Yeah. I like watching when young guys finally ascend into big minute roles and Nikhil Alexander Walker and even some of their, they're rookies like, you know, Murphy. I wanted to see how that backcourt shook out because I've always been somewhat skeptical of how much of a positive Devontae Graham really can be because, you know, he's, I, I like that he's not scared to shoot, but he's just not a very efficient player. And I kept people hearing people criticize Lonzo for his shooting when he's just as good at, at three point shooting. He just doesn't shoot the volume. And better at absolutely everything, everything else. <laughs> and that, in that defensive, Watching the Bulls play defense makes me feel like that is a team that people are so vastly underrating because they have guys like Levine and DeRozan and Huvuch who in separate systems last year all struggled to string together wins. And I've always hated that assessment that just because a player plays on losing teams that they're not capable of playing winning basketball. People said Devin Booker was a loser. Oh, 70 points, so they lost the game, and that kind of stuck with him for a while. Is he a winning player? It's like, well, give him guys. Give him... Have you seen Zach Levine play defense all of a sudden? Why is that? Because he doesn't have to do everything on offense. Yeah. Just like he's in the Olympics again. (laughs) Yeah, so those those are some of my favorites... 
uh, in the East for sure. I like I like what we're seeing from the Wizards. I'm concerned about what we're seeing from the Celtics, but a lot of that is buoyed by the fact that they're just shooting atrociously. Yeah. That could that could turn. I do like what Horford's been providing. I just Tate between Tatum and Smart shooting so poorly, it's just tough to watch that and think Tatum was a guy I was expecting to really break out. Who is off to a rough start. He's got 75 more games to figure totally, it out. Totally. But this is the whole point of doing this in weekend <laughs> is to be able to repurpose this and be like, what a reactionary pile of shit. <laughs> uh, now, out to the West. The Warriors off to a surprisingly good start. I, I do have them as a surprise. Just being 5-1. and one. Okay. I, it's not that I thought they would be bad. I still thought they would be a fringe 6th, 7th, 8th seed this year when they didn't end up making the playoffs and they lost in the play-in last year. But to be this good without Wiseman and Clay, uh, that's a little bit unexpected. Like they have, they have some culture, and, and I know you could say Steph's there and Draymond's there and strength in numbers and some of that stuff has to carry over from the championship teams, but there's more going on than just that. Like Lee is shooting unbelievably from distance right now. 46% um, at the moment. Otto Porter is still healthy at the moment. That's crazy. <laughs> he's, and he's shooting, shooting well. He's shooting like 44%. 43%, yeah. yeah. 50% so, from the floor. And it, it's such a limited role too. But yeah. to be that efficient and not have to carry a high volume of shots, it's just nice to see that bench unit excel so much. I guess I feel like they have uh, some... The whole is greater than the sum of its parts going on right now. They're elevating each other out right there, out there just by the way they play. They're connected on offense. They're yeah. a great passing team. They certainly are. I, I will say, I feel like Jordan Poole has not come out of the gates as fast as I thought, but mainly that's yeah. dictated by he, he's had a healthy amount of turnovers for a guy who's kind of playing the secondary creator there, where they've been able to weather it because Curry's just so goddamn good. And Poole, even if he shows up once every other game, Damian Lee contributing as much as he he has has been incredible for them. And of course, as soon as Wiggins got the vaccination, he just you know he just became infallible. Vax value, yeah, vax value. <laughs> yeah, va he's a vax value player. Forty percent from three, forty six percent from the field. So Way to bargain bin that one. Yeah, yeah. So that that's been encouraging. Is there anything out west that's really jumped out to you? It feels like there's just a lot of teams hovering in the middle. Well. I'll say what's jumped out to me, so to speak. Ja Morant, and I saw this stat yesterday. He is leading the league in points in the paint as a small. Over Anthony Davis is right behind him. I think Joel Embiid is behind him. And Giannis Zinacumpo. He's getting 16 of his, whatever it is, 26 points right now in the paint. But he's also been good from distance. He's shooting 38% from three. And while he missed those free throws against the Lakers, like, he is someone who obviously has been working on his game, and if he develops that outside shot, the terror he becomes. Because everybody comparing him to Derrick Rose, Derrick never figured it out consistently from the outside. He's had a couple years later on now where he's been good as a role player, but if you're a number one option in John Morant with that explosiveness and you can shoot from the outside, it completely changes their franchise, really. That team, that's a team that I've got to see a lot of already because I just, I enjoy watching them. I enjoy watching what they're doing. They're getting, not just Morant, because Morant is making this massive leap where I watch him and I'm like, oh, I, I remember saying, I think it's a direct quote, that I said something to the effect of, I just don't know if Morant can improve enough on his numbers to win most improved player. And, I'm, and I watched what he did to the Cavs and what he did to the Lakers and the aggressiveness he's playing with. And that this is with a guy like in Syria did to Marcus Morris. <laughs> it, it's unbelievable how good he at, he is at just pressing his advantage in transition, and then 
just getting to the rim, despite the fact that everybody knows he went from being, you know, when, when Valanchunas was there, it's like, okay, yeah, he was the primary guy, but he had more offensive around him. Now everybody knows Adams doesn't want to shoot. He comes out and sets those monster picks and Morant turns the corner headed downhill and it's over. It's like he is so good at finishing through people around people and to have Bain and Melton both playing as efficiently as they are. I don't want Brooks to come back because what he's getting, I think the other night he got a, you know, a quiet 20 out of Melton while Bain was kind of struggling. And then the next night it's like, okay, both Melton and Bain will chip in 16 to 20 points and they'll do it on near 50% shooting, 48% shooting. That guard play has been fantastic for them in lifting up what has been a relatively inconsistent start from Jaron Jackson Jr. so far. It's all borderline awful. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm trying to polish my turd here, Adam. Maybe maybe let's not dwell on how awful it is. He will not stay in this place. He's too no, good. No, certainly not. Because and, and, uh, there's nights where when his three is on and he takes a high volume of them, next thing you know, he's got 25 points and he hasn't even been in the paint yet. I would also point out the Minnesota Timberwolves have uh, surprised me a little bit in the West. And I brought up culture a little bit earlier. And they have Patrick Beverly there now, who's seemingly getting the most out of the guys next to him defensively, making guys better, elevating others. Uh, they have some of that belief, I think, that the Cleveland Cavaliers also have that, hey, we can make the playoffs this year. We're good enough. We have Certainly. Cat. We're talented. We just have to put in the effort on defense now. And they have a guy have like a good guy for that. Patrick for sure. Beverly, who will, uh, yeah, he's, he's the general of doing all the little things. And it seems like they have willing pieces around them who, you know, because they have such dominant usage guys in Cat and Edwards, and even Russell, who at times, you know, he, he's hit or miss so yeah. far during this season. But to have guys, you know, like McDaniels in there and Pat Beverly to play these roles, it's such a critical part of the rotation now to have guys who are willing to accept less offensive usage but contribute by, you know, floor spacing or playing defense or getting blocked shots or just hustle plays. They haven't had a lot of that in past seasons because those fringe guys have been these experimental you know, Culver or a Kogi who just had, who were coming into the game more. But yeah. now it feels like they putting some legitimate vets around those guys who are willing to just do what's needed. Makes you wonder how far they can take it. I'm also interested in Portland defensively because they've improved there and they're playing decent. They're three and two. They lost a game by 30 to the Clippers, but then they came back and beat them. And Damian Lillard has been awful. He's, he's getting 18 per game. <laughs> Where are we at? Because that game, is that going on still right now? How's McCollum doing tonight? It's going on. Uh, I'll just check it out here. now. Yeah, so so I, as of now, McCollum is 10 of 24 from four, 25 points, uh, eight assists. That's also Ben Simmons' watch with them, you know? Yeah, well, but that's also kind of the way I feel about the Timberwolves is do you think it makes it more likely that they change things if they're doing better than expected? Because it's not as if Russell is the one carrying them. He, he can have a game. I think he scored 29 the other night, but it didn't really feel like there's games where you look at it and you're like, okay, their ability to win or lose isn't dictated by him. He's just, you know, it's what Edwards. What would the and package Kat. be, though? It would have to be, you have to think, well, it's Russell. not Edwards. <laughs> no, Edwards and Cat are off the table, but it would probably be something centered around Russell, McDaniels, maybe Beasley, mm. something, something to that effect, and maybe a pick. I mean, it would depend on what what Philly wants, but you got to think it's more than Russell. We know that's the baseline. However, even with as distressed as Simmons is, you have to think he's worth more face up than just D'Angelo Russell on that contract. Yeah, like I would, yeah, because he's locked in, I would think CJ McCollum and something around him 
would make more sense if I'm Phil, if I'm Philly, I'd rather have that. Yeah. Well, I probably would because I think it's kind of foolish to be like, well, we got to get a guy around Embiid's age because like his, the age of his legs are, you know, it's substantially more than, I think you just got to max out your return talent wise and let the chips fall where they may in terms of, you know, Harris is playing well, just string together as much talent as you can and don't get too hung up on the contracts and the, and yeah. the, the age because nothing's guaranteed. And, and there's, you know, season to season, the team can flip its whole roster. It's funny hearing the Lakers talk about continuity, by the way, just on a little side tangent, when it's like, I'm watching, you know, I have spectrum sports net on the TV behind me here, which is the, the, for you Cavs fans, it's, you know, it's the local, it's the Bally's equivalent where they'll do the, you know, programming between the games. It's just all hype and fluff for the team. <laughs> and, and they're showing the preseason segment where, you know, LeBron's requesting a players only meeting. And, and he's talking about continuity and how, you know, we're back in media, we got this together. It's like, you literally turned your whole roster over. They was, have three guys from yeah. last year, him, AD, and THT. That's it. Yeah. So let's not talk about continuity, except that uh, he obviously means continuity with the players who matter, who he won't ship out at the drop of a hat. But I have uh, been interested in seeing how many Lakers fans, and this is nothing new, but the overreaction when they're about to be four and three tonight after they beat Houston. To the early season woes and Russell Westbrook. First of all, I thought, didn't you know who Russell Westbrook was? Like, really? You thought he was going to change his stripes? This is who he is. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to bring him in. I always say this, but I love Russell Westbrook. I just would never want him on my team. I love watching him. Unless my team was, you know, the Sacramento Kings or something like that. And you know your ceiling anyways. And you just want to have fun and be entertained. But if you're going for a championship, how much sense does that make to have him out on the court when you don't have enough shooting already in the starting lineup. I am curious to see, because my feeling all along, we talked about this on your podcast, the FNA podcast, about how, for me, it, the question was always, what were the pieces that were going to come latch on? Because a lot of times, I don't view anything in a vacuum. It's just like with the Tristan Thompson extension in Cleveland. If you look at that isolated, you're like, God, we paid him a shitload of money. But the whole thing was about keeping LeBron happy. And in bringing Westbrook in, my whole thing was, what kind of free agents out there are going to look at this trio and say, oh shit, Russell's got his limitations. This opens up a role for me. And guys like the Malik Monks and the Kendrick Nuns, where I need to see more because obviously Nuns not in the lineup right now and THT's out, he's out That's of it. That's huge. It, it, this, this to me could still be a win for the Lakers, but it's hard not to look at the alternatives, like what could have happened with Sacramento potentially? That's what I said. If you had gotten Beal or, or excuse, healed, yeah, I know. What if you're you saying. had had uh, Buddy healed instead, you would have been able to keep one of the three between KCP, Montrez, Harrell, and uh, Kuzma. You would yeah. have had one of them. Left. I think it's safe to say Harrell was gone, no matter what. There is that. <laughs> yeah. But but that being said, even with as good as he's playing, I agree. Like it's more of a depth issue. The idea of if you had healed. And KCP right now, even if those were the two you held on to, I mean, there is, it's debatable. We'll see how, how this plays out. Westbrook is, you know, he's what he is. Maybe well, this will work out and it's, it's early. It's not that but. it can't work out. It's not that they still aren't the most talented team unless Kawhi or unless Kyrie come back. It's how much do we have to overcome this guy's deficiencies when this could be much easier on us if we just did something else this offseason. Now, maybe there was no option because LeBron gets his way. Yeah. But... It sure seemed like it was almost a dumb, done deal. Done deal, yeah. I mean, I was preparing for it, and then next thing you know, boom, the, you know, the Wizards trade happened. Yeah, it's. I still believe, even with their age, even with the injuries to young guys right now, 
they can out talent you. They sure. they can just overwhelm you with talent, even if they don't have perfect fits. Well, and AD LeBron has been did that great in so far. AD has been great so far, although he's already you know oh, knee banged up and you know, but he's played through it. And if he gives you this kind of production, I mean, I don't think. You know, LeBron has come out fairly slow by LeBron standards, which was somewhat to be expected. But, yeah. but it, it'll be interesting to see how it carries on over the course of the season. Now, have you been following any of the the rookies? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I've been following Jalen Green a little bit. Okay. Because he was, my, I would have taken him number one. He was the guy that I thought would win Rookie of the Year coming in, but but now, and I certainly Cade's still been think. out. So well, Cade's been out certainly. Yeah. But well, the thing with Cade. In my mind, the trade-off between Cade and Green has always been Cade's going to get more counting stats. Green's going to get more scoring. Because I think Cade is an exceptional yeah. three-point shooter, but already he shot horrible his first game back, and he had seven or eight rebounds because he's just huge. You know, he's six foot eight at, at, from a guard spot where he's going to be the primary guy with the ball. There's it, it when, Sometimes when you're in a situation like that, it's like you get your own misses in a way where a guy who's bombing away threes isn't always going to do that. But uh, to, to the, the reason I brought up the rookies, have you got a chance to see at all what Scotty Barnes has done in Toronto? Uh, a little bit. So far, I would say amongst the rookies, he probably, as much as I've loved Evan Mobley, and I think he's definitely in the conversation, probably a top five rookie of the year contender at the moment. Jalen Green, despite his one game on, one game off, he's going to be there yeah. at the end. Scotty yeah. Barnes has been scoring at a rate that nobody expected out of Scotty Barnes and at an efficiency that nobody expected. He's He's been deadly from the mid-range yeah. for them. Almost 60% from two. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. The shots he's putting into it, he looks confident, and he's getting stuff at the foul line on the elbows to the point where this was a guy nobody expected to do anything except pile up steals, play some Dray. Like, he kept being compared to Draymond Green mm. in the offseason, and to see the role that he's playing with them, it 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 almost makes me feel like, maybe I shouldn't have been so confident in the most improved chances for OG because. Scotty's a legitimate contributor to that team already. Yeah. And they have good culture. They have even with the without Kyle Lowry, like that's a team because they have kept together enough of the young guys at least. I know Powell's gone now too. But there's something there from that championship year. There's something that remains. They built something because it took forever to get there to start with, you know, and they had to trade DeMar DeRozan and get Kawhi Leonard and upgrade there to finally put it together. But that's, that's a place where you can foster and cultivate talent really well, I think. I, and I'm excited to see them at full strength when Siakam comes back to have him and OG and Scotty and Van Vliet and, you know. Dragic seems like he's probably on his way out at some point. But even Gary Trent Jr. has been shockingly effective to begin this season on both sides of the ball. The bottom of the East is just so much more fun and interesting than it has been in a very long time. I know. Even look at this podcast. Uh, admittedly, it's a Cavs podcast. It was going to skew that way. But to me, that conference is just so much more entertaining at this point in the season so far. Not because just LaMelo. So much of the West is like, oh, will LeBron be LeBron by the middle of the year? Will Damian be Damian by the middle of the year? Yeah. Whereas in the is East, Is Kawhi coming back? Is Jamal yeah. Murray coming back? You're waiting kind of for the return to form of teams that we already have kind of seen them in the state yeah. that they're in. Established and versus unknown and exciting young guys in the East. Completely. Completely. Well, Adam, thank you for uh, joining me on the podcast here. I appreciate you uh, carving out the time after what must have just been a devastating loss. That, I, I, Despite the fact you've covered it up well, I like to think internally that you're just still reeling. It did hurt. When you texted me 
<laughs> Light work. <laughs> and there was five minutes left in the game, and Bob uh, Schmidt texts me, Light work. Yeah. Another easy night for the Cavaliers. <laughs> well, I will say, I was at an all time high after that game. I have been humbled. If karma has done anything, it's humbled me a bit in these past two games. Hey, I walked out of the arena, Jake Warner. I just, I didn't even say goodbye. I just waved him off. I mean, no need, bro. Do you feel as good about it because the Clippers aren't beating anyone else? No, so I don't. I don't. I, I've been, I mean, it's seven games, but it does feel like they have a little more resolve and a little more backbone to not just collapse immediately. And then I say that, and then immediately, you know, they just fell apart against Phoenix. I just stopped tweeting. I think the last thing I tweeted last night, because I've been more or less live tweeting the games <laughs> at Fear the Fro Pod, but. By the time that Aiton was just destroying them, I'm like, well, this shifted quickly. And I just was like, I'm done. I just I can't. I can't do this. It's very disappointing. Fuck this. Honestly, I was so high. Well, because there, there was a moment here where I thought the Cavs might sweep this West Coast road trip, and I was preparing all sorts of like Crowder's musical numbers. I'm waiting till after this Phoenix game to know how much I have to couch my criticisms of Jay Crowder, because if he does something good against us, I don't want to do this at a high point for him. I want to do this. I like to attack people when they're down, Adam. Well, you guys did beat, what, Atlanta, Denver, and the Clippers to win three straight, and you yeah, held yeah. all three of them under 100 points. It was Clippers fantastic to 79. Run. Yeah, I thought, I thought we were maybe never going to lose again. Yeah, uh, I, I had a feeling uh, because it's already happened once this season where the Lakers, they get the Clippers sloppy seconds. They get a team that's now beat up that gave their best right? effort against the Clippers and then they beat them. Well, and can I say that is a pet peeve as a Cavalier fan is that I want to go to the two times that they're in L.A. a year, but they're always like the back to back nights. Yeah. And, and as much as I like going to live events, it, I've almost grown to hate it because of how convenient the NBA has made being a fan when you can, I mean, even during this podcast to see how quickly we're able to access information oh, yeah. just to check stuff, you know, rewind if I, if I want to see a play twice or see who blew their defensive assignment on the other side of the court that I wasn't paying attention to and to go to the games, to have them back to back on nights like that, you're doing me a real disservice. I know it doesn't, can, it's not conducive to their travel arrangements, but space <laughs> it out, man. Come to LA one night and then, you know. Four months later, come and take on the other LA team. Speaking of everything being at our fingertips, the Charlotte Hornets have improved to five and two. They took down the Portland Trailblazers. They won one twenty-five to one thirteen, and Damian Lillard continues to struggle with the Wilson ball. Five for fucking twenty, two for fourteen from the outside for fourteen points. Woo. Good God! Meanwhile, it was Lamelo in this one with twenty-seven. Miles Bridges just had nineteen. Here's Since a, tr we here's a troubling it. regression. I was talking about pedophiles before you came <laughs> on, and, and my correlation was, you know, I have tied the name of this podcast to Jared Allen, in a sense, because I called it the Fear the Fro podcast. So as his fortunes rise, I look like a genius because I decided, hey, you know what? I'm going to name it after this guy. Who knows where he is? We just took Mobley. I think it was a ballsy thing for me to do. It could have blown up in my right, face. He got it on the stock early. But the last few games, you know, six points, four points. <sighs> As he goes down, it's bad for me. You know, my correlation was essentially that it's like... What does Mobley's hairline look like? Can he just grow out a... Right, right. Grow himself eventually? Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> I made it a caricature. It's like, you can't really say whose yeah. face is. It's just, it's just glowing red eyeballs. Hey, Ben Wallace was a Cleveland Cavalier and he had a fro for exactly. a bit. Well, that's the other thing is that I realized... It's like, it, it's the age part of me that's like, ah, I just got to assume people who are listening to this aren't going to hold that against me. Like, I realize I'm just straight 
up ripping off Ben Wallace at this point. But as far as I'm concerned, out of sight, out of mind. And the last few times I've seen him, it's been under control. He doesn't just let it flow anymore. <laughs> Jared Allen lets it flow. It's now his. Yeah. I'm giving it to him because I want I wanted to pay tribute in a non-copyright infringement style way, ideally, would be accepted by well, the public. Why would Cavs fans get on you? They're hoping the same thing. That No, they're hoping the same thing. But what I'm saying is if he becomes a pariah somehow... If they're like, oh, he's $20 million and Mobley's a million times better than him, yeah. that's when the tides would turn. Now, I think that's impossible because Jared Allen is just too good of a player <laughs> for that to happen. But I'm just saying it was, a you know, these last couple games, watching him devastating the Denver Nuggets with just a fantastic performance. Yeah. It's been a slow regression into, this is a peaks and valleys guy this season. Sometimes we involve him, sometimes we don't. Fortunately, he's there mostly for his defensive impact. Yeah, and you can't always quantify all those things, you know? It's no. it's much bigger than the numbers. But that got me thinking about like what would have been the worst NBA players to name a podcast after after like any point in NBA history. Probably Len Bias would be near the top of that list. <laughs> like if I if I okay. draft day, I'm like, "Okay, I'm going to name a podcast was after Len Bias." Rodney Rogers radio or something. Didn't he shoot a gun up in the air outside of a club or something? Oh, well, okay. Who That's another good one. Who was the guy who, uh, oh, Jason Williams, was it? Did he, he murdered a limo, limo driver? driver. Yeah, yeah, that would have been a bad one. Yeah. Even if you were talking about white chocolate, it still would have sucked to name it yeah. <laughs> Jason Williams. I tell you, I'm glad I didn't name it after, say, like Michael Porter Jr., or, or, or one of these anti-vax guys. Or, see, I bet you there is an Orlando Magic podcast that after... Jonathan Isaac had his little breakout season. They did that. And then next thing you know, you know, he's embroiled in all this political stuff and the kneeling and all that stuff. I bet you that guy's like, ah, I just lost half my audience. The Sean Kemp celibacy podcast or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be an awful Dwight one. Howard would fall into that, right? Yeah, he'd fall into that. Uh, I'm you know, trying to think. Ugh. He came in all, all Christian and then next thing you know. Just kids well, everywhere. it was never it was never proven. Those two girls that were walking into his apartment, those pictures that leaked on Reddit or wherever, we never heard anything else about it. I don't no, know. That's, oh, speaking of, I can't believe we didn't touch on this subject. I'll probably have to splice an audio after to support it. But did you hear the Richard Jefferson story? No. It's a TikTok kid who called him out as being a gigantic a-hole when he was a locker room attendant for, for the Cavs. Interesting. And uh, Richard Jefferson... I guess he's been doing it a little while, posting TikTok videos, and Jefferson finally responded, and he said something to the effect of, well, since you so desperately want the attention, I'll answer this. Yes, I was a giant dick to you, but that's because you were Peter-gazing. Um, <laughs> and, and, but, Did and, he use the, that phrase, yeah, Peter-gazing? Yeah, he called him a Peter-gazer, basically. He said, you kept staring at our penises, and it made everybody uncomfortable. And the ball boy actually said that uh, Jefferson has a giant hog. Uh, and he's like, far be that may be true, but that's beside the point. The point is, we always felt uncomfortable that you kept staring at our penises. What the guy reply with? <laughs> I don't know that the guy. I didn't even look. To be honest, there was a part of me that's like, I love that Richard Jefferson is on ESPN right now. It's funny the things that'll get you fired for right ESPN. Now. <laughs> well, right now, yeah. yeah. I mean, Paul Pierce. He got ran out of there, but Richard Jefferson is shaming some guy for looking at his crank, and he's still there every morning on the jump and doing all these things. I love Jefferson. I want him to be able to do this type of stuff. I like him. He's yeah. cool. I enjoyed that story, though. It's funny. He's interesting. Yes. So uh, I don't think there's a better way to go out than uh, on uh, talk of Richard Jefferson's penis, because I also I did the most annoying thing that you can do in radio, which is I promised it last podcast, and then I never even talked about it. Oh, you didn't so pay I, that I, one off? I didn't pay that one off. I at least had to bring it back to just... Discuss. Oh, man. Pay off the tease. Yeah. Don't. So 
So Bob Smith who cries wolf if you don't. So by the time I return for the next episode, I uh, I'm expecting the Cavs to have a winning record because we're going to get back to home. We're not going to be playing all these Western Conference juggernauts. You guys have a home court advantage again, or? I mean, I would like thing? to think that we do. <laughs> I would like to think that we do. I know we have a paint advantage. I, I still point. have the utmost respect when they scream Scottie Pippen when LeBron first came back as a member <laughs> of Miami Heat. I thought that was really clever. I thought uh, all Cleveland fans <laughs> got to win that night, even though they got blown out by like 35. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, sometimes it's not about the scoreboard. <laughs> that was creative. There is such a thing as a moral victory in that uh, sense. Beat your ass in the parking lot. <laughs> so once again, Adam Osmond, pre and post game host of the L.A. Clippers, at Follow Adam A. Also, check out his podcast with another friend of the program, Kevin Figures, the FNA podcast. It's uh, available, well, pretty much everywhere you get podcasts. Is there anywhere it's not? Uh, Spotify. Okay, Spotify. I don't know why. We can't get it on there for Right, because they support Joe Rogan and Adam's just making a stand. I don't know, but I felt pretty bad when I saw yours up immediately on Spotify. You know, and we're like, we've gonna... been doing this forever. Exactly. I've got to make up some ground. i got to use whatever, <laughs> sure whatever you already have. No, I don't know about that. <laughs> we got to get I will you back say, on, though, soon. I have a shocking, uh, shockingly large following in Finland. Attributable to Lowry <laughs> Marketing. the data? I wish the Cavs would just... You know what? The, you know how everybody panders to the... China audience. I need like, we need a Chinese player on the Cavs. I could really take this podcast places, I think. Yeah, there is that. You can go international. Yeah. It's not about uh, how good he is. No. It's no. about the fear of the fro pack. In Cleveland, Adam, it's never about how good they are. <laughs> it's about potential. It's about the future. And listens. <laughs> exactly. So thank you for joining me at Fear the Fro Pod on uh, Instagram and Twitter. Download, rate, subscribe, all that stuff. I'm Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports Radio. This is the Fear the Fro podcast. Okay, that's enough. Stop it! This has been another Fear the Fro. It's over. Podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel. Please consider subscribing. Check out FroPod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here.